Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Rosie Andrews. Her debut, The Leviathan, was published last year to great acclaim. It's just come out in paperback, which gives us a brilliant excuse to talk about it, how it was made, where it was made too. You can hear how her process is constantly evolving how it's changed through writing and why she is aware of what needs to happen next. Also, why for her inspiration, she just needs to get out of the house. And even though she is a huge procrastinator, she can still crack on when she needs to. When I need to be disciplined, I I usually am. So I am, although it's not my, my habit to sit for six or eight hours a day and get from a, a point of nothing to a point of having it done, um, it is something that I can do if I need to. So it, it depends on, on what the requirements are of um, of a publisher and so on. But I think more importantly than that, there's a kind of, um, how, do, how do I put it? There's an internal process that's going on behind all of the the physical process of writing, isn't there? You know, you can synopsize something, you can write down what you intend to write, but until your internal process catches up with it, until you emotionally connect with your character, until you realise how you feel about what you've planned to do, how you feel about what you have done, whether you think it's any good, whether it needs to be changed or revised, that has a timeline of its own, I find. There is more with Rosie Andrews in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome to the show. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we talk about an author's working day. Where, when and how they take their ideas, get them down onto the page, onto the computer screen, whatever it is. And fingers crossed, get it on the shelves and have a bestseller in there somewhere. Uh, For the last time, before it probably becomes a little bit unacceptable to do so. It's the first episode of the year, so a very happy new year to you. This week, we are chatting to Rosie Andrews. Not that it's really important in the grand scheme of writing. It was just interesting to me. Rosie was born and grew up in Liverpool as the third of 12 kids. She went to uni in Cambridge, became a history teacher and is now an author. She's worked on one book that is tucked away safely in a drawer, perhaps that one that will never see the light of day. And her debut, The Leviathan, came out last year and it's just been released in paperback. It's a beguiling tale of murder, myth and mystery set in the 17th century, 1643, a time that Rosie, as a history graduate, knows very well. It's all about Thomas Treadwater, a soldier returning from battle who holds a very deep, dark secret that is about to be let loose. We chat about how she is building a purpose-built writing space. I'm always fascinated to talk about that. When you're a writer, when you're making a space specifically for you to create in, how do you know what you need around you? How do you analyse and plan all of that? 
Uh, even so, even with that space, all she really needs to get to work is to be alone and be silent. Also, you can hear why her routine needs to be flexible. But what's handy with that is she has no problem getting the words out, really. We talk about how she gets into a book, writing a bit and then working on a synopsis. Also, how much that synopsis changes when writing the full thing. There's a lot going on this week. It's a really in-depth chat. I think it's a perfect way to start a brand new year to hopefully give you lots of writing inspiration and motivation for 2023. And we get into it with Rosie Andrews, as we always do, talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I thought that this was going to be a video call, so I very conscientiously tidied up behind me. Um, and I have, you know, if you could see this, what you would see would be a kind of row of, of books. I have many, many books. And it's been tidied into what has stopped resembling just a complete mess after Christmas um, with proofs that people have sent me, which was wonderful. And um, books that I know I should have read by now that I haven't and lots of books that people have given me for Christmas and now it sort of looks orderly so you would expect that what you were looking at um, was a writer's study. If you could turn the camera the other way (laughs) what you would see is that it's been colonised by Christmas entirely so I have the Christmas tree um, to my left, I have laundry drying just beyond that, I have a slushy maker, um, a jigsaw, Lego, um, some helium balloons, an easel, some more Lego, um, and and just generally, it's all a bit of a tip at the moment. <laughs> I know we're in that in that period of cleanup, and I'm sure many people listening will be staring around at rooms that look exactly like yours. When do you reckon the last of the Christmas detritus will be put away? Well, that's a question of if rather than whether. <laughs> We are at the moment building an office for me to use and for my husband to use. He does a bit of work from home. Um, so we've, we're lucky enough to have a space that we're going to move um, most of the books into. And we will then return this room to its sort of meant function as a, a dining room. So at the moment, this is a multifunctional area and um, never as tidy as I would like. I have a six-year-old. And so the kind of idea I think that people have of a a writer and that I maybe have of myself as a writer uh, of working in a maybe slightly messy but ultimately dedicated writing space has not yet materialized Um, but I'm hoping that at some point soon it will do. Well listen if you're slightly creating a designated space for you I know you'll have to share with your husband at times but how are you planning it what what do you need around you do you think for, for your writing space to make it to your spec? Um, the main thing that I need in order to to write something is more interior than it is to do with the physical things. So I, I tend to need to be on my own, um, which obviously when you have a family, I have a dog as well, that can be quite tricky. But to have that space set away from the house will be really valuable. Um, I need to, <laughs> one thing that's been quite interesting, I think, about the last winter and the gas prices and the heating is that I've realised it's quite the privilege to be able to turn your heating on, particularly when you want it. Um, but I need to be physically comfortable to write. That's a thing that's, I suppose, not been um, in question maybe as much as it has been for the last few months. Um, so I need that to be, you know, well well heated and, and so on and to have a, a desk space. And after that, I can write if I need to. What I prefer is probably a space where I have all of my research materials to hand. So obviously it's nice to have the internet, which it will have. Um, But more than that, I think that the books that I have particularly focused on to get the key facts out, to get the um, any thoughts that I need written down, notebooks and things like that, um, I would like to have that around me without all of the other detritus that that I mentioned and that you referenced. so we will eventually get that space into a working order. But in the meantime, I think for me, I can write pretty much anywhere on my own. Um, I'm not really somebody who can take myself off to a cafe and write around others. Um, I can write. In fact, I can have the television on. I can have um, be moving around room to room. Can't really write with music around me. So it's relatively flexible, but it will be nice to have a space where I can at least imagine myself going in and sitting down for five or six hours to produce something. You mentioned the notebooks with research in there. Do you need anything around you that's uh, particularly uh, 
that helps you draw back to where you are in the book. So uh, your synopsis, your 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 plotting, your planning, maybe a timeline of where you're going or what you need to be. Do you have whiteboards, post-it notes, that kind of stuff? So I'll, I'll say that there's a sort of spectrum, isn't there, between the person who has all of that and the person who just goes and, and writes something. And I think, like many people, I probably sit somewhere in the middle. But this being my current book that I'm writing is the, the third novel that I've put on paper, and it will be the second one that I am publishing. So it's still somewhat experimental in terms of what I think I will eventually be like as a writer. You know, it's an evolving thing. but when I think about it, I, I do start off with, um, I begin with an idea and that is normally, I can begin writing with something as little as a scene or a character or a conversation. After that, in order to really seriously start to research what I need to research, a, a synopsis or a concept is important. So I will need to have something that's closer to a blurb, I would say, than a synopsis in order to progress maybe the first couple of chapters. And after that, what I have found quite consistently is that I need to know the end because if I don't know the end, particularly when I'm writing something in the mystery vein, where you're going becomes a little bit arbitrary, doesn't it? You know, you need to know what crumbs to lay in order to direct the reader the way you want them to go in a mystery. So at that point, a synopsis becomes imperative. Um, Once I have that, it can change. And so when I'm writing, I normally do have the synopsis lying around somewhere, but it's not always physically printed or I don't always need to refer back to it every couple of minutes. I need to know that I have that conceptually in the background. Um, once, um, once I get to a point where I have something resembling a story, I then try to plot it out a bit better so that I can work out, let's say you have... Um, main story and a couple of subplots what I will try to do is separate those into strands so if I know for example that my main character is going to go from A to Z I will put everything that just involves that into say strand A and then if I know that I have another subplot or a second protagonist I'll separate that out and put theirs into a different strand B if I know that I go backwards and forwards in time, I will try to separate those out so that I can see that each part of the book, however it will eventually be assembled, is progressing towards some form of conclusion. Um, and I suppose then it evolves further the further you go into the editing process. So now that I am working with an editor, there's the process of feedback and agreement of what we're going to change. Um, so one of the things that I would typically do is have that conversation and then say, okay, I'll write back to you what I am going to change. Um, and should that be you know, what we both expect, that's what we'll do. And then I do tend to have that in front of me as I change things rather than just because otherwise I'll go off on some tangent and, and do things that neither of us have, have agreed, basically. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I mean, you mentioned earlier that your process is still evolving so your three your your three written books down to publish well it will be to published uh, and you've got some idea of where you want to be but the process that you're discussing still sounds quite thought through how have you evolved it this far to know what sub point plots you're writing what strands you're writing here what you're writing there between a and z how, how have you uh, ironed that out over the last three books? I think um, one of the things that I, I did when I started writing, I, I started writing little short stories and had no um, idea that I would eventually write a novel. But one of the things that I did was sign up to a novel writing course of a, of a sort. It was very informal, but it was really good. Um, over the course of a year, I went to a house up in Cambridge, which was run by a lovely lady um, called Gaynor. And, and she brought writers to the house to speak to people about how their processes worked. Um, and particularly one of the ladies that I was speaking with um, was writing a crime novel. And one of the ways that there were in fact two different ways that people seemed to plan things out. Some One person brought a sort of almost like a map of various themes and, and climatic points and various things like that. And then um, the other writer had this system of A, B and C. And I just felt it was really practical. You know, I was like, I can see exactly the separate parts and whether they are progressing or not. And then you can get down that 
um, column and you can say, right, which parts of this are supposed to be um, mounting tension, which parts are supposed to be resolution, which parts are not meant to be finished at all and meant to progress you, for example, into a second novel. Um, and I just found it really practical and a good way to um, make sure that I was in control of the action. So I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> and and talking about where you want it to evolve, I, I don't often speak to writers who, they're not mapping out their progress in their future because that would be a bit stupid. But they've, they've got an idea that this is a... That this is a, it's a movable feast. This is working. You know, it, it might always change book to book. Have you got you know if all thing if all is being well and you're following books, follow up the success of the Leviathan and all of that. Have you got any idea of how you would like to work as a full time writer? I think I would like to be more disciplined overall because I think you know I've evolved not only as a writer but as a as a parent. Um, gone from teaching full-time to not teaching so there has been a lot of flux there and maybe not quite so much in the way of really focused writing time and I think one of the one of the interesting things actually is going from being unpublished to being published because the, the demands on your time are very different in those two circumstances when you're just writing one book, you have no other book to edit. Um, you have you, you're not um, chatting, having lovely chats with people like yourself, or going to writing festivals or um, publicity. So, for example, some of the things I've done are things like writing interviews to be uh, published as a Q and A, or writing a short story to be published. I did something for I think it was the Express when the Leviathan was published, and so there's more to juggle. And I think trying to find the right balance of really the, the sort of sustained thoughtful time that you need to produce something you're happy with as a novel and at the same time juggle publicity for yourself what we will essentially call self-promotion um that's a that's an evolving thing and I would like to get to a point where I'm happy with the way that I spread my time over this sort of introverted stuff and the stuff that you also do in order to make sure that people see your book moving back to the office that you're creating for yourself. I, I, I don't know. We, we've talked about what you might need that's plotting around you. Uh, what about inspiration? I don't know how inspirational a slushy machine is for you at the moment. <laughs> uh, uh, will you need, ideally, will you need art? Will you need family pictures? Maybe uh, newspapers that your book is featured on? What will you like to have on the walls around you? My inspiration typically comes either from time that I spend away from the house so for example if I go to a place and I think I could set something here I've been to um really loved you know any any sort of what particularly tends to attract my attention are historically interesting places and particularly places that are um almost ambiguous I quite like borderlands I like the Scottish borders I like the Welsh borders which is where my second novel is going to be set um and I tend to find that a story idea will spring up when I'm away so I'm okay on that front. And secondly, I like to get my inspiration from reference books as well. So I have a whole um, neglected collection of books on the occult, on um, the, the sort of landscape of heaven and earth and hell and Dante and, and various things that I know that I would love to spend time exploring in more detail. And again, I think that that kind of, um, I, I think of it as mining almost, bringing more and more into my sphere of awareness so that I can eventually go right that's the idea that I want to go and work with um, but that's something again that you have to focus time on so I think having all of those things in a more orderly fashion in the office when it eventually materializes um, will be useful <laughs> it varies because having a, a little girl who's six she has school but she also has holidays so typically during the holidays, it's almost like a sort of whenever I can grab time approach. So in the morning we have um, we have dog walk. So the dog has to be taken out either by me or by my husband. And at the same time, um, my daughter has to, you know, not be completely neglected. So <laughs> we look after her and finding time in that sort of environment to um, sit down and write a chapter or sit down and review a chapter and work out that 
something needs to change about it um, or whatever else I might be doing. That can be quite tricky. So luckily, my, my husband's brilliant and I can say, I really have a deadline or I need to get this done today. And in those sort of circumstances, I would usually take myself off upstairs. So I don't always write in, even in this messy study with the Lego. Um, sometimes I will write in my room, in my bedroom, um, which is quite, it's a nice, um, calm space. I think that I find that that's pretty important. And I will tend to write for a couple of hours um, and then maybe leave it for a day or two. So I'm not a write every day person during those times. When my daughter's at school, we tend to structure the day much more around the school run. So um, I will usually do both parts of that school run. So I will normally do the drop-off and the pick-up. And between then, you would think there were, I always thought that there would be lots and lots of time, but there really isn't because you still have to do all the things that you have to do. So um, doing the, the shopping, doing the washing, doing the cleaning of the house. And I'm a terrible procrastinator. So I will find myself distracted by virtually anything that you could mention. So I love television. I love reading. I love looking at reference books. I've just started um, watching Happy Valley. So unfortunately, that means, you know, writing has to take a back seat for a couple of weeks. Um, but typically, I will tend to find a couple of hours, normally in the morning. So I'm a mo I think I'm a better writer and I'm more focused before lunch. Um, and I will tend to find just a, a couple of hours or an hour and a half to make some progress. And I'm not, um, although I, 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 this is not a, a judgment on anybody who is, but I'm not a slow writer. I tend to write um, 500 words, 1,000 words a piece. So I normally find that within that space of a couple of hours, I can at least make some form of step forward. Is there any aim for that time? You say you're a fast writer. Are you desperately cracking onto a word count? Have you got a point in the story where you'd like to finish that day? No, I don't. I don't plan that. I normally think, where am I? I normally write until I feel like I've reached a point of some conclusion or other, or until I run out of time. So I might write until I reach the end of a a small part of a chapter or a chapter um, and then think, right, that's a decent last sentence and I'll go and do something else. But there's ne never a, a set word count that I want to achieve in that time, mainly because I think it would drive me to write badly rather than what needed to be written. You know, I would be trying to fill a word count rather than... Uh, of course. Um, yeah, just, just typing out anything for the sake of the number at the bottom of the page. When your daughter is back from where she's been through the day, when it's family time again. How good are you at switching off from the story? I don't think there's much of a choice, really. I mean, it's very, um, even having only one child, you know, it's full on with a dog and a, and a child and a, a family. So I tend to find it, it does go out of the window rather than constantly needing to, to try to come back to it. Um, with reading, it's different. If I'm reading something that I think is um, important for my research or, or my story, I tend to find it harder to switch off from that. And I'm usually drifting back towards trying to read whatever it was I was reading. Um, but the distractions are many. So We've spoken about your evolution as a writer and how that might change going forward. So say, for instance, you get on some book deal where you need to publish one book a year and, and there, there has to be an element of you getting down to work. And you've mentioned the distractions, how you like to watch tv and how you put other things on hold because of sarah lancashire and happy valley or whatever <laughs> it is when you're um i don't know do, do you think maybe in the future you might have to change it and might have to be a bit more structured and, and forceful with the words on the page because you're contracted to get so many out do you think that might be a possibility that you would be fine to deal with or might that be a struggle when i need to be disciplined i i usually am so i am Although it's not my my habit to sit for six or eight hours a day and get from a, a point of nothing to a point of having it done, um, it is something that I can do if I need to. So it, it depends on on what the requirements are of um, of a publisher and so on. But I think more importantly than that, there's a kind of um, how do how do I put it? There's an internal process that's going on behind all of the the physical process of writing, isn't there? You know, you can synopsize something, you can write down what you intend to write. 
but until your internal process catches up with it, until you emotionally connect with your character, until you realise how you feel about what you've planned to do, how you feel about what you have done, whether you think it's any good, whether it needs to be changed or revised, that has a timeline of its own, I find. So I could put down a novel, for example, and I have done, I've put down a novel that I think I've finished and I've come back to it after a month of rest away from it that's been enforced by circumstance. And I've thought, no, actually, I really don't like what I've done with that and I'm going to change it. And I think that it's important to try to have some fidelity to that internal process as much as it is to think about what is needed externally, if that makes sense. Because you can reach a point where you're so wedded to a deadline and to being productive that you lack the ability to engage emotionally with what you've done. On days when the words are struggling to come out, um, have you learned anything along the way that really helps you out? Some writers will have a cup of tea, some will go for a walk. Is there anything you do? I don't find that the words struggle to come out. Um, they they normally are kind of grasping to get out. <laughs> Maybe if I was somebody who had more time, I would reach more roadblocks. But I think that because things are so busy and because the, the sort of um, dedicated writing time has always felt so valuable, I'm always I'm always ready to, or I, in my experience so far, and obviously we know that things change, but I've always been fairly ready to move on to the next section of the story. I haven't yet experienced what I know many people have called um, writer's block. If I did, I think a change of location, of pace, um, putting it down and reading something are usually the tools that I would go to. We get quite niche and nerdy on the show. Uh, people are very interested in what you're writing on, what you're writing with. Uh, so just like run us through the setup if you can. So are you on a, a laptop? Are you on a desktop? What software do you use? And perhaps most importantly, what font do you write with, Rosie? So I was listening to one of your um, your episodes in preparation for this and I, I thought, I heard you ask these questions and I thought, right, I, I better check. Um, and the truth is, I don't know what this computer is. It is a laptop. Um, it says Envy on it. I think that's Hewlett Packard. I, th- I think to give them their due, that might be a Hewlett Packard. <laughs> I'm a troglodyte. I, I'm not somebody who loves technology. Um the computer works. It has Microsoft Word on it, and I use that. Um, and I've I've always used that. You know, and I know that there are people who've gone off to Scrivener and gone off to Google Docs. But Scrivener, I found the idea of it when I when I looked at it, and I looked at you buy it and and so on. I thought I could easily spend more time organising my notes than I could actually writing the novel. So I thought no, and I left that alone. And Google Docs just discombobulates me. The idea of my novel being out there somewhere instead of in here somewhere feels very separate from me and it made me uncomfortable. So I didn't do that. Um, So I used traditional word. The font is Times uh, New Roman. And frankly, I can't write in anything else. Uh, 10 point. Okay. And and that's what I have to do. So... (laughs) So the only mild contention there of what is a pretty standard setup, if I may say, Rosie, is yes. um, the tent. Oh, look, I mean, this this could sound so boring to someone just picking up the podcast and listening <laughs> into me blathering on about fonts. But ten point—that's quite—that's quite small. That's the only thing I will mention. Is it? Um, I, I have good eyesight, but I also find that um, because you can use the zoom in function, it. it I don't know. I don't even know why I choose ten. No, you, I don't think. I, I don't think you need to psychoanalyze it. I think the best reaction to that question, <laughs> that question is what you said. Is it? Is it really small? Do, do people care anyway? Um, you are. It's interesting. So you're 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 a few books in now. We 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 we've chatted about moving forward and how that might change. You you seemed and from what you're saying about the thought process behind it, you taking yourself off to uh, a writing course once every while in Cambridge and I know that you were an English teacher so becoming a writer is clearly something that you've wanted to do you mentioned how the it's not a struggle to write because the words are constantly coming out how have you found this process so far of having a quite an acclaimed debut novel that's in paperback and 
but having to do everything else, having to chat to me, having to do Q and A's for the Guardian or whatever is. How have you found all the noise around you being alone with your thoughts and with words on a page? Um, so if I made it sound as though you were a chore, I apologise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, what it is is it's very. What I said to you about the two plot lines, you know, the A and the B, is it feels very like that. There is the almost the management of a, a writer's um, presence, if you like. You know, you you do the social media part of it, you do the chatting to people on podcasts, um, and then there is the well, there may be three parts to it. There's the internal part of trying to write something next and trying to make it good and particularly for a historical writer I think trying to connect with another age in a way that really requires a separation from things like you know your laptop and phone and and Twitter and things like that Um, and then there's your your normal life you know that there is um, the person who has never been on any sort of presence or known or ever had any kind of public profile and that person is still there so when I went home for Christmas, for example, I have a massively um, huge and, and sort of unwieldy family. And no one mentions the fact that you've had a book out. No one, I mean, they were very pleased at the time, but nobody wants to sit there and talk about it. You know, they're, they're talking about who they saw in Tesco and, and, and so on. And that feels completely natural, but that's also completely compartmentalized from the part of me that for my next novel is reading um, Dante's Inferno for example or for what I think might be my next novel so those things feel completely separate and then the sort of publicity side of, of being a writer and the interactive side of being a writer feels very different to that and again compartmentalized so there's a danger that you can almost feel like you're living two or three different lives I think A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We'll be back with more from Rosie in just a tick. Very quickly, I want to point you towards our Patreon page. If you enjoy the show, if you like the episodes that we bring you, all the fantastic guests and authors that we chat to, all the tips and advice that we learn about writing, if it's helped your day at all, you can help us out for that by becoming a backer and pledging to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You're helping us carry on bringing you these chats as often as we can with the best authors around, authors of all kinds. We've got loads planned for 2023. New authors, authors that have been there, have done it, have got many t-shirts that they've bought with their best-selling novels. We'll chat to the lot over the next 12 months, I promise you. If you'd like to help that carry on, become a backer, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It is a one-person operation. Just me. I do everything. I'd like to dedicate as much time as I can to that. Now, with, with your backing, makes it a lot easier for that to happen. And for it, you get our eternal support, very grateful as always you get merch there is bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor the show if you've written something worked on something in the last few years that has not got uh, the push that you think and i think as well it absolutely deserves let me plug away at it for you through the year and over on our patreon page you can make that happen become a backer it doesn't require a lot i know times are extraordinarily tight so anything that you can send our way uh, goes a very long way 
I assure you that. Become a backer and help the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Rosie Andrews chatting about her debut, The Leviathan. It came out last year and has just been released in paperback. I'm sure there's a reason why the publishing cycle works this way. I've never been interested enough to find out if I'm honest with you. Anyway, The Leviathan is a beguiling tale of murder, mystery, myth as well. It's genre twisting and bending. It takes what Rosie's very interested in, history, and blends it with the types of stories that she loves to read, uh, fantasy and mystery. It's set in the 17th century, 1643, all about Thomas Treadwater, a soldier returning from battle to be confronted with a very deep, dark secret that is about to be let loose. We talk about why her life at the moment is like having two plot lines. She's worked on this book. She's still creating more novels, but she needs to sell the ones that she's already got out there. So there's two strands, many plot lines, a lot like how it happens in her book. Also, we chat about how much the final novel stuck to her original synopsis, and we get back into it with the very first idea that she had for the story and why she doesn't really recall it. I don't remember exactly um, the formation of the idea, which is only really about four years ago, I think, if that, um, three years ago. And even so, I can't remember precisely which parts came to me first. Um, I think that the part that came to me first was the element, um, I knew it would be 17th century and I knew it would involve my main character, Thomas, returning from a battle. And I knew it would involve him finding something that was gothic and mysterious and he needed to unravel. But I didn't know exactly what that was. And I started along um, the lines of of thinking about Puritanism and thinking about um, the things that were particularly um, apparent to, to those people and what they believed in. And we, we started, or the story started, moving along the lines of witchcraft and a sort of um, a possibility of, of that kind of nefarious activity going on. And then as the story developed, it took a bit of a turn um, into what it eventually turned out to be, which was more of a, an exploration of the, the possible and um, the the sense of of a monster sort of underlying this period in history. And how exactly that came to be, I'm not sure. It was quite a short writing process in the end. It was about nine or 10 months. But again, if you ask me to pinpoint where the idea came from, I would probably struggle. <laughs> so I, I guess then the question is, if you can't remember that precise moment, what happened next? H- how did everything come to you when you were drawing up that slight blurb or synopsis what questions were you asking yourself after you got down that first little bit Mm. um i knew that the turn that the story takes was a, a fairly surreal one and one of the questions i was asking myself was how much can i make this um coherent and logical rather than taking a lurch into a purely sort of fantasy-based tale, which maybe wouldn't marry itself very well to the way that the story started. So my question was, could I do it in a way that was consistent with that world, with what they believed in, with what they thought existed, um, and with the the themes that I had already begun to explore in the story. Um, so writing it out as a synopsis was a good moment for that because you can see it on the page and you can think, right, boldly, that looks a bit odd. Can I make that work? And you can start to interrogate um, how you can make it work and how you can form up an idea that you know, develops and evolves through a story rather than seems to take a very strange turn, if that makes sense. You mentioned your research earlier on. Um, you knew you wanted to write about the, the 17th century. What, where were you starting with the research? How did you know what to read, where to look, what books to kind of get through? So I knew the 17th century reasonably well because I studied it at university. So one of the um, the quotes at the beginning of the book is from Thomas Hobbes or attributed to Hobbes um, and is to do with um, his conception of, of heaven and hell. Um, and that was very interesting to me when I read his, um, his work, Leviathan, when I was at university. And the connections between that and the political landscape and the belief landscape of the time were always very fascinating to me. So I felt that... It was a period of time I knew well enough to set something in. 
there was still a sense that, you know, there's a lot of detail that you need to bring together to create a sensible, believable world. So there were things like the physicality of Norwich, for example, that I needed to find maps about, or I needed to go there to actually look at and see what the the landscape of of North Walsham was like and the surrounding areas. So I visited it um, and did some research around that. But I think the underlying knowledge of the period was sound enough that I didn't have to spend two years exploring it and, and trying to work out exactly um, whether what I was planning on writing was possible. I thought it was, but there was some filler that needed to be then um, controlled. Now, this isn't, I don't know how to phrase this, this isn't an, uh, a normal debut, if you like, in that many people, when they first publish, might go straight to more genre-based fiction. Um, what made you want to write something slightly different, kind of moving through this fantastical historical genre? It was, is that something that was always in your head? Was it a conscious decision to be a bit unique like that? It's just what I like. When, when, I, um, <laughs> when I watch things or read things, I tend to enjoy what I think of as a bit of a mashup. You know, I like it when people bring together unusual strands of things and then produce something that's interesting um, and new. So although I do enjoy what I think of as more genre fiction, particularly historical fiction, I lean a bit more towards the the mythological um, and I lean a bit more towards the fantasy world. Although I enjoy reading fantasy, I again lean a bit more towards the historical reality. So for example, I've enjoyed series like Game of Thrones, Aragon, etc., The Sword of Shannara. They were all things that I read when I was younger, but I wouldn't see myself ever as a fantasy author because I simply have too much interest in the historical um, reality. Likewise, I have enjoyed some of the mythological retellings that have been quite popular, but I would lean more towards, I wouldn't say more modern history, but not the classical period, if that makes sense. Um so it just was a, a sort of um, a, a coming together of the things that I really like. How much did you have to think about that part of the genre then? Um, in the actual words you were getting down, the style in which you were writing it, how natural did that come to you, writing it in maybe a way that does echo 17th century uh, history? Mm. Um, that feels like I don't know whether it's having been a teacher and having explored um, how language is used to create a particular feel or effect um, as much as having been an English teacher forces you to do um, but that that part of it felt relatively natural to me so for example the second novel that I'm writing is um, and that's the work in progress at the moment is set in the 19th century and there's definitely a change there's a sort of um, evolution of language that you would expect to see it wasn't something that I found terribly hard so what I I normally whether I get it right or not is a completely different question but um, what I normally do is I read a couple of um, books of the time so primary sources contemporary things and I try to absorb how that diction works and then I try to think well you can't write like that because nobody writes like that anymore and a modern reader might not engage with it in the in the way that you want them to so it's about where the the, it where it can be smoothed into a more modern semblance of language but at the same time retaining the feel of something that could have been written at that time and getting to know your characters Thomas Treadwater uh, and and everyone else uh, how are you getting to know them it, so they they they're articulate as perfect uh, well they're as as perfectly portrayed as you want them to be on the page. Um, I'm not one of those people who does quizzes about characters. Um, I don't think I could tell you when his birthday is. I don't think I could tell you his favourite colour. Um, what I I try to do is try to be as specific as I can about what's motivating my character in the things that they do. So. One of the traps, I think, of, of writing is that rather than allowing, rather than thinking enough about what why your character would do something, you require them to do it because the story needs it. Um, and then it ends up being something that maybe nobody would do or maybe that character simply wouldn't do based on the other things that they do. So I, I try to spend as much time as I can working on, well, why does he do that? What, what did he do before and why did he do that? How does he feel about that? Would he do it again? Those sorts of questions rather than 
what I think of as sort of useful things about his favourite food, but not necessarily essential things. Some authors I've spoken to would be quite keen for their characters to exist in a world outside of your story. Uh, how bothered are you about that? If, if you kind of took Thomas Treadwater away from this um, fantastical story that he is in, would you be bothered about learning about his childhood or seeing him do other things? Do you, do you care? Um, I can imagine, I mean, since you've asked, I can imagine him running a bookshop in, in Norwich, in, in Tombland now. Um, <laughs> and I think he'd, he'd do that very well. But it's not, I don't necessarily need to come out of the text in order to um, round him off within the text, if that makes sense. I don't need to know a huge amount that's not going to go in the book. You mentioned earlier your in the synopsis, you like to know the ending. You like to know where your characters are heading towards. How closely do you find they stick to that plan? Or often are they dragging you elsewhere, dragging you down avenues of story that you didn't know existed? With The Leviathan, it did stick to that plan. Um, So I felt that when I'd finished writing what I had originally written in in the synopsis was what came to pass. There were some um, parts of it that needed to be tweaked and and moved around a little bit, but essentially it was that story. With what I'm writing at the moment, which is a novel called The Puzzle Wood, um, there have been two versions of it. One version had only one protagonist. And when I got to the end of that draft, I felt it just didn't work. Um, And I needed to add another perspective, one that would allow for, for certain things that needed to happen within the story, but also one that provided a sort of balance to um, what the main character could see and some doubt that was cast around what the main character thought she could see. And so I rewrote that and there are now two protagonists in that story. Um, roughly the ending is the same, but the there are some key changes around the way that the ending happens. Um, so whether or not the third book or the next book that I write, whether or not that pattern whether there will be a pattern, I don't know. <laughs> and one last question, just about the process we were discussing and the, and the evolution of that. Uh, you're writing your next book, This is the Puzzle Wood, and then presumably you will go on to write more and more. That's, that's the hope. Um, you, you've kind of already mentioned what you would like, you would like to be perhaps a bit more disciplined going forward. How, I guess, what have you learned about the way you write and about storytelling over the last few books that that is really quite front and centre in your mind as you write on? Um, I think it's really important to me to, to explore, to explore a book um, privately before I, if you like, take it too close to my agent, to my editor and try to make sure that I really believe in it. And I, I think it makes sense as a concept and that can take time. Um, but also I think it's important to to be ambitious in what you write if that makes sense as well so I, I like with, with the Leviathan I know it was a it, it came from a sort of slightly uh, left of center idea and I like left of center writing I like to read something and find it that it really surprises me that it goes somewhere that you don't expect it to go and I think that I would like to maintain that um, in what I write going forward having said that there also comes a responsibility, if you like, to write for the readers who've already invested in you and to ensure that what you write doesn't take you so far from them that they're not necessarily bought in. So it's about a balance as much as it is, um, you know, just just writing what you feel like. So being selective and uh, sort of strategic is as important as getting that time to um, just really personally reflect on what it is that I want to put on the page before I try to sell it to anybody well just uh, sorry following up uh, I don't know if I've ever really spoken to an author who has mentioned their the readers that are already there so honestly as that before when does the thought about them come in is it in the genesis of the idea are you thinking hang on this is uh, quite left of center this is quite unique but will the audience that already exists buy it or is it? Does it come a bit later on? Are you, as you're writing, you're thinking, "Well, hang, hang on. I know that some people will be expecting this from a Rosie Andrews book. How can I keep? How can I kind of bring them along?" To me, um, for the second book, 
it came in the genesis of the idea. So there's, there was a question in my mind of, um, should I go to a different time period or stay in the same one? Um, should I make it so that it, it leans more into historical fiction um, and is more realistic? Or should I make it so that it leans more into the, the kind of um, melded fantasy angle that we discussed earlier? Um, and, and I think that there's something there's something good about at least for a second book trying to create something that is true to the spirit of the first but again trying to maintain that element of something surprising um if I really felt that there was something that just compelled me that I absolutely had to write then obviously I I would do that but I think that there's what what's actually quite useful is that I know that the first thing I wrote and the second thing that I wrote are things that I would go and pick up off a bookshelf. So as long as I can stick to that, it doesn't matter too much to me. It, so it's not a bad thing that I'm writing for an audience, if that makes sense, because the audience, I'm in it. I write things that I would read. That is it for this week's episode with Rosie Andrews. Thank you so much to Rosie for coming on the show. You can get a copy of that brand new book, The Leviathan, in hardback and now in paperback, online or in person. Use your local independent bookseller if you can. Thank you so much to Rosie for sparing the time in one of her plot lines of life to come on the show. Uh, Next week, we'll be back with a brand new brilliant best-selling author, In the meantime, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Anything that you give goes a very long way. It helps us keep bringing you these chats as often as we can. You can let us know what you think. Send us a note. Who do you want to hear from? What authors do you want me to run through with? Uh, Writersroutine.com, by the way, is the best place to do that. Use the contact form. If you have sent author suggestions in... Uh, I am working on that. I am following up. These things take time and sometimes authors can be quite hard to get hold of outside of their publication and publicity cycle. Uh, You can also give us a follow on Twitter. We are at WritersPod there. And I will see you next week with a brand new author on Writers Routine. Until then, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.